This podcast is Challenging Opinions and is presented by William Campbell. Thank you for downloading the Challenging Opinions podcast for May 14th, 2018. There's so much partisanship in the news these days that it's difficult to get a balanced take on many stories, particularly the potential Russian meddling in the election. Many people seem to draw conclusions according to their affiliation, not the facts they find. In this podcast, we try to take a balanced view. Challenging Opinions is the podcast where ideas are tested. Whether you are left or right, conservative or progressive, devout or skeptic, what matters is the strength of your argument, not the strength of your voice. Just a quick note, I mentioned at the top of last week's show that I'd set up a Patreon account and a couple of other things for people who want to support the podcast. I'd really appreciate anybody who does that. But also I had a query because I've set up an Amazon affiliate link and I usually link it with the books that guests have written. I put a link to their book on Amazon in the show notes for each of the podcasts. But I had somebody getting in touch with me just for clarification. And in fact, if you follow that link, so you click on somebody's book in the show notes, it doesn't matter what you buy on Amazon, that supports the podcast. It's not just buying the book, anything at all that you buy on Amazon, and it doesn't cost you anything. You get the same price on Amazon anyway. So if you'd like to support the podcast like that, it doesn't cost you anything, and I'd really appreciate it. On a Skype line now, I have Christopher Novembrino. He's the host of the Don't Worry About the Government podcast and also the host of the All in the Family podcast. But Christopher, I was listening to your recent podcast where you were talking about the sceptics amongst people who were discussing Russian interference in the 2016 presidential election. Just very briefly for us, when you say the sceptics, what are you referring to? So when I say the skeptics, there are really two groups of skeptics. There are the skeptics on the right and there are the skeptics on the left. The skeptics on the right are essentially Trump partisans. They are loyal to the president, so they have a bias towards information that advantages their president and a bias in the other direction for information that disadvantages their president. Mm -hmm. On the other hand, there are skeptics of the left, um, and they are not even the Democratic establishment. They're actually further to the left of the Democratic establishment. Mm -hmm. These are essentially leftists uh, who don't want to engage with Russia. And I think their motives can be anywhere from they have a business relationship with Russia today or Sputnik Mm -hmm. or that they are just simply anti-war. And so this kind of plays into that broader scheme of things. So if we were to characterize that, you would say that there's one group of people who say Trump and the Russians didn't do this bad thing together. And I know that because I like Trump. And there's other people who say Trump and the Russians didn't do this bad thing together. And I know that because I like the Russians. It's not even because they like the Russians. So with the leftists, they're cynicism comes from a distrust of the intelligence communities, which Mm -hmm. was largely fostered, especially for my generation, which is millennials and generation Xers, was fostered around the Iraq and Afghan war, where the intelligence community 
had bad intelligence or in worse constructions of this were even fed bad intelligence and deliberately fed it to the American public. So there's sure, a distrust. Sure, but, but, from, but there's motivated thinking going on here. Yes. Yes. I, I think that it is a political question for both the left and the right. It's a political question. And, and frankly, honestly, even for the center, the, the people who are still loyal to Hillary Clinton, politically speaking, they also have a vested stake in this because they want a reason to explain away the loss of their preferred candidate, Hillary Clinton, who, in my opinion, ran a poor campaign. And that was a much bigger catalyst for this than really anything Russia did. OK, well, then, since we've both agreed that we're sane, rational people who only ever look at the facts and everybody else is guilty of motivated reasoning and um, just favoring their own side, since we're much better people than all of those, you did a rundown. Well, of in, the in different- all fairness, William, I just want to say this. It's, uh-huh. it's not that. It's that for me, Election Day is kind of like Christmas and never getting your gifts. I just simply don't have a political party in this system that I live in that really reflects my views accurately. And I, I know, but I was as kidding. such, I have a detach between the left and the right. I, 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 I get that. But you did actually provide a very good breakdown issue by issue of what you would call the skeptics. That's to say people who don't think there's much to this Russian story and people who do. You, I think, have a more nuanced opinion of this story. And you did a piece uh, saying that you agree to some degree with the skeptics, but not in other ways. Can you tell me uh, what's the number one hit? What's the top line thing that you think where the skeptics of this story have a point? Where I think the skeptics have a point is that the Washington, D.C. establishment, uh, who, who I tend to refer to on the show as kind of like the Morning Joe establishment. I watch Morning Joe all the time, so it's not necessarily slag on their program. Mm-hmm. But there is this conventional beltway thinking that has been trying to explain away the loss of Hillary Clinton. And I think that they have overstated the influence that the Russians had on the 2016 campaign, because mm-hmm. I, I think there are two sort of separate questions going on. One How much influence did the Russians have on the 2016 campaign? And I think that's more up to debate. And then more broadly, how much abnormal interest does Donald Trump and the Trump organization have with Russia? And Mm -hmm. I think that that is a much more robust debate in a different category. So Democrats have been overstating the importance of this first category, the influence on the election. And I think that's where the skeptics on both the right and the left are right, albeit sort of in a broken clock is right twice a day sort of way. Okay. Um, I understand what you're saying. And I think you could argue very much that no divisions in American society could have been exploited if they didn't exist. But It is true, isn't it, that whether they were successful or not, what's called the IRA, the Interest Net Research Agency, I think it is, belonging to Russian military intelligence, they certainly wanted to exploit those divisions. And there's the story, for example, of two rival Facebook pages being set up in Texas to be against and in favor of Muslims in Texas. That's a clear attempt uh, to cause trouble, isn't it? Absolutely. Now, inside of I think it's that exact same story, though, we also learned that the Russians only learned about swing states late in the 2016 campaign. Mm -hmm. And even this play at 
exploiting Islamic tension here in Texas. I actually live in Texas. Mm-hmm. I mean, if you're not in the right part of the state, this is kind of playing battleship. You're actually going to just miss the target entirely. Now, if they hit, let's say, Richardson in the Dallas area, there are a lot of Muslims there. That would be a, a pressure point to hit. But let's say you're doing something out in Waco. I don't know. There might not even be any Muslims in the town of Waco, probably in Waco. But if you go into West Texas or somewhere like that. So I think that's where the overstatement is. The, the Russians did learn about swing states and they did dump a lot of money into Wisconsin and Michigan, no doubt. And frankly, that could have been enough to move the electoral map in those states because the, the margin of victory was something like 87,000 votes. Right. It's mm-hmm. not impossible to imagine a scenario where the IRA was that final push over the cliff. I just think we pay attention to that last push and then don't pay attention to everything else that the Clinton campaign did to get themselves in position for that. Sure, and I I agree with that. And and I certainly agree that if Clinton had run a different type of campaign, this whole operation by the Russians might not have been possible or feasible and so forth. But one thing that I disagree with you on there in that, so for example, the Russians were putting resources into causing havoc, making trouble, for example, in Texas. There was no chance in hell that Clinton was ever going to win Texas, so why would they bother doing that? Why should they not bother focusing on, for example, Wisconsin? And my answer to that is that this is where the Trump-motivated skeptics are wrong. And they seem to be thinking that Putin is on their side and for that reason he must be a good guy or at least tolerable. And I think that's entirely wrong. I think that Putin just doesn't care about Trump one way or the other. Putin's aim is to cause unrest, to cause difficulties, to cause uh, inter-communal divisions. Therefore, it doesn't really matter whether he's doing that in Texas or Wisconsin, does it? No, and I I hate to inform you, but I think we're in vigorous agreement on this. It's pretty obvious if you look at Putin's strategy here in the United States. He's not necessarily doing political things that reflect his political worldview. Mm -hmm. He's doing political things to gain access into the system. So the kind of two big pressure points I'd refer to is, one, what we are seeing with this developing story between Russia and the NRA Mm -hmm. And Russia doesn't have a right to bear arms. So why would there be these Russian right to bear arms groups? And I mean, you can get into that whole thread, but it doesn't seem to really conform with Putin's actual political worldview. Sure, and sure. This, is exactly, this is exactly what I mean. Putin is not promoting political positions that he personally believes in or that Russia believes in. He's p- promoting political positions that will just cause division. Absolutely. So that would get me to my other example, which is RT America, Mm -hmm. which is very different from any of the state propaganda which Putin is doing domestically, right? So in the United States, essentially Vladimir Putin has financed and created an MSNBC for leftists, complete with Chris Hedges, Ed Schultz, who used to be an MSNBC presenter. Mm -hmm. Uh, They had Tom Hartman on there for a while. They have Mike Papantonio, who is known as a progressive host on The Ring of Fire. This is a show or this is a network that is designed really to have a left of the Democratic Party appeal. And that Mm -hmm. certainly doesn't conform with Vladimir Putin's politics. And also RT is broadcast, I know, in Europe. They have picked up various personalities, including the former First Minister of Scotland, who uh, led the Scottish National Party almost to independence in Scotland. He's now a presenter on RT. Uh, I don't really think that Putin has an awful lot of sympathy with regional independentist uh, separatist movements in Russia. 
he's supporting that because it makes trouble for the UK. Wouldn't you agree? Absolutely. Yeah, it's not about some grand vision of this idea of local sovereignty, right? That's certainly not what Putin has been out there preaching. If anything, he's preaching an expansionist vision of Russia while quietly supporting secessionist movements all over the globe. Everything from kind of silly ones in Texas and California to more serious ones like Brexit or like Scottish independence or like Catalonian independence. I want to just turn to where Putin may actually have genuinely aligned interests with Trump and with the people around Trump, and that's with money. It is really startling the number of people around Trump who have business dealings with Russia, given particularly that Russia is not an economic powerhouse. Yeah, it's actually kind of stunning. Uh, That was really what kind of turned the corner for me, editorially speaking, on the show, is you just start going into Trump's Extending history with Russia, his interest with Russia, the the real estate deals that he's done with Russian oligarch stateside, the fact that he has these longstanding ties with Felix Sater, the fact that he was exploring building a Trump-Russia tower and was using Michael Cohen, who is currently, as we're taping this, in a whole heap of trouble. I mean, it feels like there almost has to be something there just by the nature of this if you've been covering news for any length of time. I've never seen a case where there has been this much smoke and not been a fire. Is it possible that for all of the the division caused by things like uh, sponsoring rival anti- and pro-Islamic groups in Texas, the most successful thing that Putin has done is put Trump in a position of power? That's not to say in the presidency, but in a position of power where he perhaps saved his financial empire. Yeah, I think that's a big deal. He did save Trump's financial empire. And I think honestly what he found in Donald Trump was a really awesome vehicle to do money laundering because real estate's value is really fungible. And the Russians are always in need of legitimizing their money because most of the money that's being made over in Russia is not necessarily being made in ways that would be recognized as entirely legal by a lot of other global governments. So having Trump real estate available to them is very, very useful. And yeah, they did save Donald Trump from bankruptcy. And they also have probably saved the Bank of Cyprus from bankruptcy as well. There's a lot of weird financial games the Russians are playing. And they don't do this for the good of their health. You, This is not like uh, taking a loan um, from your local city bank and then paying it back. W- once you take their money, you're on the hook to them forever. Yeah. I mean, it's not unlike the mob, right? They're not going around and supporting local businesses. They're going around and trying to find ways to become stakeholders. You're clearly not a Trump supporter, and neither am I. I'm willing to talk to people who support Trump. I'm willing to listen to people. But comparing Trump's policies to the degree to which Trump is compromised, which do you think is worse? I think... The degree that he is compromised is worse than his policies, although that being said, his policies have been very advantageous to Russia, especially compared to the alternative, which is certainly a calculus that Vladimir Putin was considering. If Hillary Clinton had become president, Vladimir Putin would be facing someone who wants to have a confrontation in Hillary Clinton. And so those sanctions would have been passed and Hillary Clinton and her government would have endeavored to make sure that those sanctions were heavily enforced. In the case of Donald Trump, we saw sanctions get passed last year and the administration dragged their heels 
to not actually enforce them. And then the initial rollout was they just took a list of the most wealthy people in Russia and rolled that out as their version of sanctions when the sanctions list was due. They did eventually get more serious about this. But but I think that's part of Vladimir Putin's calculus as well. How do you see this going forward? I think uh, if I was a magic eight ball, I would say check back later because there is a lot of game left to be played. I mean, it is entirely possible that Trump's administration gets abbreviated substantially because his legal woes overtake him and he eventually can no longer bring in new people or retain a legal staff to save himself. And then we would get a President Pence who would be facing serious congressional pressure to do something. Or theoretically, if he resigned, uh, we would have someone else. Things are really in flux right now in a time that I've never experienced in my 10 years of doing political podcasts. So it's really hard to tell. Sorry for the meandering answer, but this is complicated. <laughs> and yeah, my, my feeling is that the least likely amount of time that Trump will be in the White House is four years. Maybe, but the thing with Trump is that he has a habit of bucking expectations and conventions, and he bucked expectations all the way into the White House. And those same people who are quick to cite that, I don't know why you wouldn't consider that he might do that on his way out of the White House. This is a guy, unlike any other president, I could legitimately see saying, this isn't worth it. I don't really like it here. I just want to go home. Because he initially wasn't spending a lot of time in the White House. And it wasn't until he started getting kind of publicly razzed about it that he had to come out and say ridiculous things like, oh, I love living in the White House, which no other president would ever have to say because there wouldn't be any suspicion about it. Do you think that the stories that Trump really was overawed, was not happy to have won the presidency. Do you think that's going to have an influence going forward? In what way? Well, in the sense that maybe, as you say, that he might say to hell with it and throw it all in, but that he, if he is confronted with enough trouble, particularly from this Russia investigation, that that might motivate the way that he he behaves. So I think the issue of him not wanting to win the presidency and also not thinking he was going to win the presidency is where the seeds of Trump's political demise have always been sown. Because if you go back to the tail end of the Trump campaign and then even in the transition, there are a lot of behaviors being done there that are hard to explain any any other way than this is just a guy who's simply not interested in really winning it, like trying to set up Trump TV two weeks out before the election. Mm -hmm. They were already flirting around with this idea of how does the brand work after we get robbed of the presidency? In fact, it was Trump who initially came up with this whole idea that the election was rigged. And the whole concept of that narrative was to be able to say after the election, oh, man, they stole the election from me. If only, if only. So... Yeah, yeah I, I at, think at that, one point, at one point, Ben Carson was accused of not being on a presidential uh, election campaign; that he was on a book tour. It seems like that might have been true of Trump. Yeah, and I think that that early piece that came out—I want to say in Politico in early 2015—former Trump staffer or whatever who was in the business side of it basically talked about this as a branding exercise run amok, and. It did feel like that in the early stages during the Lewandowski era. Mm -hmm. And then once Paul Manafort arrived on the campaign, the campaign started to have a starkly different tone. But I never got the sense necessarily from Trump 
that he was particularly interested in trying to win it. He wasn't particularly locked into the debates. You you would have thought that if there was anything that he was going to find joy in, it would have been getting to stand on a stage with Hillary Clinton and saying whatever he wanted to her for 90 minutes and she couldn't go anywhere. Christopher Novembrino, host of Don't Worry About the Government podcast, also host of All in the Family. Thank you very much for talking to me. Thank you so much, William. Never miss a show. You can subscribe to the podcast for free using iTunes, Stitcher, TuneIn Radio, or any other podcast software or app. See challengingopinions.com backslash subscribe for details. Go to the website for sources and Chris's links. And while you're there, please like the show on Facebook, follow at ChallengingO on Twitter, follow Chris Novembrino at Chris Novembrino, and get in touch with me if you can suggest a guest or topic for a future show. Also, you can find out how to subscribe to the podcast for free on your computer, your phone, or by email. It's all at www.challengingopinions.com. And as I mentioned last week, I've created a Patreon account and a tip jar. So if you'd like to support the podcast, I'd really appreciate it. And you can even do that at no cost to yourself by using the web link to buy the books that I list in the sources on Amazon. If you buy that book or anything else, then the podcast gets a small commission. Coming up next Monday, that's May 21st, I'll be talking to Natalie Parrott, the creator of the excellent YouTube channel ContraPoints. The Challenging Opinions podcast is produced and presented by me, William Campbell. Thank you for listening. Mm-hmm.